Welcome to Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson. Adam, how are you today? Good evening, everybody. You're listening to WSQF 94.5, where we have the Statues and Stories, hosted by Adam Levinson and the quiz meisters Ed Vidal and... Uh, what do you call me today? Uh, don't Mac have, on the Rock. Mac on the Rock. I don't have the answer for you today. Okay, so we're going to tell a story of two Georges, correct, Adam? Exactly right. And you know where we got that name from, the story of two Georges? Well, George Washington's one of them. And then George George Vidal is the other? No, George Hanover, the George III of Great Britain. So there's several reasons that we're using this title tonight. The first is that, here's a question for all the listeners, who was the father of our country? Ed Vidal, I mean George no, George Washington. George Washington. So happy Father's Day to everybody. That's the first observation. Yes, and happy Father's Day to you as well. So we, we just posted recently on the website statutesandstories.com, and the background is that uh, the president, President Trump, was on tour in England. He went to visit the to Normandy for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. So I always look to see what's going on in history and in the news. And as it turns out, as part of this official state visit, he spent three days in London. He went on a tour of Buckingham Palace with the Queen, and there was a big state dinner at Buckingham Palace. And I read in an article about how there was a series of historical artifacts that were put on display from the royal collection. And, of course, this is a collection of artifacts of not just jewelry, but of books and art that goes back five more than 500 years. So they screened and took out of that royal collection from Windsor Castle and Buckingham Palace, um, a handful of items that they put on display for the American entourage going to Buckingham Palace, and that the Queen and the King and the Queen and and uh, President Trump were, were allowed to see. And uh, you know, normally when humans like you and me or regular mere mortals go into a museum, everything is behind a display case as it should be to protect it. But uh, when you're the Queen and you're the President, these materials were not in front of a display case; they were just put on eight tables. So what we posted about on statutesandstories.com are these eight artifacts that were displayed, and the name of the table, the name of the, the, the display, was A Tale of Two Georges, and of course that's George III and George Washington. So um, normally when we do this uh, you know, every week, I, I begin by describing how I, I give the names of the books, the secondary sources that I'm going to be referring to, because as people know, I'm not a trained historian, I'm just a lawyer, and I have this website, statutesandstories.com, where we talk about history and we use books and primary sources to tell the laws that teach American history. So as it turns out, two of the items that are in this display, the Tale of Two Georges at Buckingham Palace that was created for the Queen and for President Trump, are books. So here we're going to be talking about actual books, not secondary sources written by historians, but actual primary sources. And uh, that's the primary purpose of today's discussion. The other thing that we have, we can discuss if we have time is there's a holiday which is coming up in two days. And uh, because one of you is from Texas, uh, you may know the answer, but what holiday that a lot of Americans aren't familiar with comes up in two days? Juneteenth. Juneteenth. Do you want to tell us, Ed, what Juneteenth is? Well, that was when the Union troops arrived in Texas and proclaimed the end of slavery. And so, so I think if we have time, and we may not, but if we have time tonight, we can spend a little bit of time talking about Juneteenth. And I'll also point out that I also have a post on statutes and stories that tells the story of Juneteenth. So that's the second thing we can talk about. And uh, also, I'd like to talk a little bit about John Jay. And as you'll hear, John Jay factors into these these books and these artifacts that were on display by the Queen. Uh, and if we don't finish it today, we can finish it maybe next week to talk about John Jay, because he is one of my founding father heroes, among others. Sure. So that's that's the background. 
about what we're going to talk about tonight. Did you have any questions before we got started? No, he well, doesn't get a lot of uh, publicity, John Jay, but he he was very involved. Well, he created a lot of a lot of ruckus with his Jay's treaty. <laughs> uh, now, for the audience, uh, the, these two Georges. Uh, were they contemporaries, or they were opposites on the timeline of history? That's a good question. So they were they were enemies, but I think they each had a lot of respect for each other. And it's interesting, Manny, that you asked that question, because one of the items, and let me begin by saying it this way, that, you know, the, the folks who work for the queen and... You know, royalty to have had a dynasty that's been around for hundreds of years, going all the way back before I, I don't even know the history of when the, the monarchy started in England. Uh, but uh, to go through all the, we could talk about the Hanovers and the the Windsors and all the way back to the to the different dynasties. But long story short, they are very good at recording history and understanding symbolism. And I'm not someone who follows closely the royal family. I'm not a, a court watcher, but uh, I'm going to give credit tonight to the, the the exhibit and displays that they put together, and it was not easy online to, to try to figure out exactly what items and artifacts. There were pictures of it on the news of them walking through, but you couldn't see what was on the actual tables. So I spent a little bit of time, and they responded to me. I emailed to, it's called the Royal Collection, and uh, it's a Royal Collection Trust, so the Queen doesn't actually own these artifacts. They're part of a trust. You know, She's the trustee on, on charge of all these. It's one of the largest collections, by the way, of art and historical artifacts in the world, and it's uh, one of the few royal families where it's been held um, you know, from generation to generation without being sold off. So it's an amazing collection. So the question was, what did they put together to put on this tour when the president and uh, you know many members of the cabinet were there at Buckingham Palace for this official state visit? So we're going to be walking through what the president got to see, what he got to handle, what he got to hold, what he got to look at when he went through that tour with the First Lady and with the Queen. So that's what's on store for tonight. Wow. Okay, so... Uh... I don't know exactly where this is going in terms of is there a climax or a conflict that that the two Georges will eventually engage in or because of this mutual uh, respect for each other, nothing really. Well, they were on the opposite side of the American Revolution. Well, that's conflict enough. But is there a climax that I'm. Well, the only climax I can think of is that when George III in England found out that George Washington was retiring from the Continental Army and going back to his farm in Mount Vernon, he said that George Washington must be the greatest of men. And I think in history, there's only one other uh, general that had done something like that, and that was Cincinnatus in Rome, who had been a farmer. He had become the commanding commander-in-chief of the Roman army during an emergency where he was given full dictatorial powers. And once that was over, he resigned and went back to farming. And, you know, that was masterful. See, I do fall in love with you, but it's for short periods of time. Okay, good. Thank you. Was that really awesome, Adam, or what? By the way, that is one of the items, and we'll, we'll go into as much detail as you want, that, that was in this collection of artifacts that the Queen and President Trump got to see. So let, let's start with that item. So how do we know this? Because you can't read the mind of a of a king. So how do we know what George III thought of George Washington? And the answer is that this was on the table. And let me tell you, there were several tables that were set up for the, for, for the President and the Queen to look at. And uh, this was uh, the, the last item I was going to talk about. But since you mentioned it, let's, let's do it in reverse order. So, um, and by the way, it's funny that, if I'm not mistaken, the, the song that was the lead-in was Peter Frampton. Yes. 
Okay, now Peter Frampton is an English, and you know, he's American too, but he's an English-American uh, musician. But uh, we're going to talk tonight about the diary of Joseph Farrington, and Farrington sounds like Frampton. Uh, maybe they're similar related names, but uh, so who is Joseph Farrington? And the answer is, I would have no idea. But back in the day of George III and President George Washington, he was a artist and he was also a diarist, and he would he kept he kept the diary for thirty years, and he was part of that circle, um, you know, of uh, in the King's circle of of artists, etc. And in that that group of cultured, and we can talk a little bit about George III later. But uh, he kept the diary, and he had a conversation with Benjamin West. And do either of you know who Benjamin West is? Nope. So this is again the time frame of George III, and Benjamin West was an American, but he spent most of his life in Europe working as a painter in France and in England. So Benjamin West did a lot of work for George III because George III um, was, was interested in attracting artists and scholars, and we'll talk about some of the things that he accomplished as, as the King of England. Though, of course, he's famous for losing something. Why did George III famously lose? And this is an easy question. The American colonies. Right. So George III is probably most famous for having lost the American colonies. But there are some good things he did, which we'll get to. But George III had a lot of these artists working for him, including Benjamin West, who's famous for painting pictures of George Washington. So Benjamin West knew both Washington and George III. And uh, Ed was was right on when he described how, uh, and this again is, how does how do we know what George III was saying about Benjamin Washington? Uh, I'm sorry, how do we know, let me say that again. How do we know what George III, the King of England, was saying about George Washington, his rival? And the answer is that Benjamin West was present for a, because he would work with the king. And um, I'm going to read you from this diary. This is the diary of Joseph Farrington. And Joseph Farrington recorded, because he would write everything down in his diary almost every single day for 30 years. And that's one of the ways that artists today and scholars know what was going on in the royal circles, because Farrington kept his very intricate diary. So Farrington recorded, he was told by Benjamin West about the conversation that Benjamin West had with George III. So let me read you, and if anyone wants to go to the website, statutesandstories.com, you can actually read from the actual diary rather than saying I'm making this up. You can read the primary sources. So what does Farrington say in his diary recording this conversation with Benjamin West and George III? And let me read it to you. So a quick answer is, uh, this is now discussing the king and Benjamin West. He asked, that's the king, he asked West, what would George Washington do were America to be declared independent? And West said he believed that he would retire, meaning George Washington would retire to a private situation. The king said, and this is a quote, if he did, he would be the greatest man in the world. So here you have the king of England saying that if George Washington did what Benjamin West thought George Washington would do, he would be the greatest man in the world, meaning he wouldn't continue after being the leader of the Revolutionary Continental Army for him to retire like Cincinnati which is the, the Roman dictator, to retire into a life of um, agrarian um, you know, harmony rather than leading the country or, or seizing and maintaining power would make Washington, quote, the greatest man in the world. So I'm just continuing to read briefly from the, from the um, diary. West said that the war had made much ill blood, but uh, basically George III asked the question. He asked West how he thought the Americans would act towards this country, England, if they did become independent. And West said the war had made much ill blood, Ill blood, but that would subside. And the disposition of many of the chiefs, this is again a quote from the diary, the chiefs here, Washington, Lawrence, Adams, and Franklin, and Jay. So we can go through those names. We, we know who Washington is. Who's Lawrence? So for those who've watched the Hamilton 
Hamilton one day it'll be a movie, but the Hamilton musical Lawrence is the father of John Lawrence, who is one of the characters and one of the one of the, yeah one of the characters and the a good friend. So the, the son of John Lawrence, John Lawrence Jr. I'm sorry, take it back. It was Henry Lawrence was the father. John Lawrence was the son. So John Lawrence, the son, was friends with Hamilton, and Henry Lawrence was a leader um, of the Continental Congress. So here Benjamin West is saying that Washington Lawrence Adams, who's Adams. John, right? John Adams, John Adams, Franklin, who's Franklin? Benjamin. Benjamin Franklin, and Jay, who's Jay? Uh, John Jay. John Jay, so again, this is Benjamin West describing to the king that Washington, Lawrence, Adams, Franklin, and Jay, quote, were favorable to this country, this country's England, which would soon have a preference to any other European nation. So Benjamin West was telling George Washington, George III, that uh, eventually after the war is over, the countries would get back together again, and, and that's where you get this compliment to George Washington. So this was one of the items, this diary. Uh, dating back to this time frame, the, the late 1780s um, time frame, was one of the items that was on the table for the Queen and for President Trump to look at. And again, this is the symbolism. Why would they put that item out for President Trump and Melania and members of the cabinet to see? Because here you have George III complimenting George Washington. Whoa. So uh, uh, is anybody implying that Trump? <laughs> no, no, come on. <laughs> Oh my! Well, you know, a Trumpster would immediately say, "Oh, the Queen's implying that Trump is the greatest." No, a great man. Yeah, because think about it: Trump is going to leave the presidency and go right back to building buildings. So why not? You know, it's not. A, maybe he'll go to a farm because he has that winery. Okay, back to back to the 1780s. <laughs> so let me walk you through what these items were. And remember, they've got hundreds of years of presidential gifts and royal gifts and royal artifacts that have been collected and treasures. So, you know, for them to put together this exhibit, and it was quite interesting for me, and I, I think you'll appreciate each of these items, and they are all described in detail on the website, statutesandstories.com. So I'll, I'll mention what they are, and then we can go in, through each in as much detail as you want. So the first item, in no particular order, was a book, and I love antiquarian books, which is one of the things we spend a lot of time on the website discussing. So the first book was a, by the way, this, is, this book, I'd love to get my hands on it, was a book of John Jay's letters that were given by John Jay's grandson to, um, at the time, a prince, one of the, I'll tell you who it was, this was Prince if I could do this as a question, but I wouldn't even know myself, so that's why I'm not going to ask it to you as a question. No, no, but don't. It, no. Well, you, you set me up all the time with questions, and then, then Ed thinks he's smarter than me, and now it's because he went to law school and I didn't. You know, it, it really becomes a real rabbit hole here in the studio, so please don't. So remember that the founding fathers and mothers, they were men and women of letters. They would write letters, and that's one of the ways that we've got good records of the revolution and the early part of American history, because we've got these letters back and forth between Washington and Jay, and Jay and Hamilton, and uh, Franklin and Adams, etc., and Madison. So um, long story short, and I'll make it into a question, in 1860, a future king of England, his name was Albert Edward, and he also went by the name of Lord Renfrew. He traveled in 1860 before the Civil War to America. And uh, so he's at the prince at the time, again, Prince Albert Edward, and he's touring America, and he's trying to establish good relations between England and America. And he met with John Jay's grandson. And let me ask the question, who was John Jay? Well, just, obviously a founding father. No, he was but, a diplomat. But he was Secretary of State, wasn't he? No, he was a diplomat. He was sent to England to he was only ambassador? negotiate. Yeah. And he was Chief Justice of the United States. But he was never Secretary of State for anyone? He was Chief Justice. 
That but was there, after, though. But there wasn't much going on, so I think he went on a... Did John Jay ever serve as anybody's Secretary of State? Manny, it's interesting you ask that, because he served in multiple diplomatic positions. He helped negotiate with Adams and with Franklin the Treaty of Paris, 1783, that ended the Revolutionary War. No official position. To Spain. Uh, he, he served in lots of diplomatic posts. He was the Secretary of State under the Articles of Confederation. Oh, there you go. So my, my yeah, brain... That was close. That was good. So, right, my, so, my, so my brain didn't totally... Hey, was there a uh, president or a chief executive officer during the Articles of a Confederation? An interesting question. So one of the weaknesses of the Articles, and the Articles lasted from the time of the Revolution until 1789 when the U.S. Constitution was put in place. Yep. So basically all you had was, let's call it Congress, the Confederation Congress. There was no chief executive. You had committees, and then the head of different committees you know, would have um, you know, power in an ex- executive kind of a capacity, but they did have a, um, you know, an assistant with regard to foreign affairs, and that was John Jay for many years. And he was offered by Washington. When Washington became president in 1789, he offered to appoint John Jay as Secretary of State, but uh, John Jay turned it down, and instead he became the first Chief Justice. Who became the first Secretary of State? This is a question for Manny. Oh, my God. Uh, um, uh... Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson was a big job that John Jay turned down. So, so let me skip ahead, though. So 1860, you have a member of the royal family comes to the United States on a tour, a good, you know, good faith diplomatic mission just to spread goodwill and try to try to improve trade between England and America. Um, so what's the point? The point is that on this tour across the country, John Jay, the grandson of John Jay, the founding father, gave him a book of correspondence. And these were original letters signed by John Jay and letters to John Jay. And Beckham used to keep, they would write a letter, but they keep a copy of the letter that they had written. So that way they could refer back to the letters they sent and they would keep the letters they received. So this is a very historically important set of letters from John Jay. And let me also point out that John Jay, the Chief Justice, who again had been a Secretary of State, if you will, under the Articles. He had also, he was a governor of New York State. He was involved in writing the New York Constitution. Uh, he was involved, he was the president of the Continental Congress during the war at various stages. And he served, when you look at the different branches of today, we talk about Article 1, Article 2, Article 3. Article 1 is the executive, Article 2 is Congress, Article 3 is the judiciary. You know, he served during his career in, in, the, in state government and in the federal government and all the branches. So when you look at his experience and his expertise, he really had his fingers on the pulse of what was going on during that time period. So these letters that were sent to him and, and that he wrote, um, you know, really capture uh, the, the, the poetry and, the, and the, the detailed history. So for whatever reason, as a, as a sign of good faith, John Jay, the grandson, gave this book of letters over a 10-year period to Prince Albert Edward, who was traveling back then, I guess they would travel under uh, assumed names. They didn't want to attract too much attention. Uh, so he was traveling as Lord Renfrew, R-E-N-F-R-E-W. So here's the question. Who was Albert Edward, who became a king of England? What, what was he called when he became the king of England? Edward. Right, Edward VII. So Edward VII was given a copy of these John Jay letters. So I'm, I'm trying to give you the background that, that these wonderful items are put on display for the Queen and for President Trump to see. So what letter did they choose from this book of 
correspondence by John Jay. And the answer is there's a letter written by George Washington to John Jay, and I'm going to tell you about this letter. This is a letter from August 15th of 1786 in this book of correspondence that was bound together into a book, which they have at Buckingham Palace. And the good news is that a lot of the letters have all been scanned as far as I can tell. So you can read the letters, even though we don't have the originals in America. They're in England, of all places. So take a wild guess in August of 1786. And remember, the time frame, this is before the Constitution is written. So what's going on in August of 1786 that Washington would be writing John Jay about? Either of you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, Washington says, these articles aren't working out. I may have to come out of retirement. So, Manny, I'm agreeing with you that Ed may have read ahead because this is all posted on the website. Yeah, yeah. I did read that. I I wanted to completely, you know, I've been dying to compliment him. But since I'm NRA, I don't know anything about knives. I'm just fired, you know. I'm all (laughs) done. No, I did read this part. Come on, This part I did read, 86. he's sitting there with his phone. He's cheating like it's going out of style. I'm here trying to hold, you know, hold the show and keep it exciting and everything. This is the one. And well, making snarky comments. And he, there he is with done this. Your, your homework. That's you're what he, Cliff, you, you guys are two attorneys. It's not fair, you know. All right. God. Doing homework is a good thing. But the point is that they have, as I said, 500 years of historical artifacts and, and jewelry and art and all kinds of, who knows, so things that kings accumulate and queens accumulate. So one of the things they put on the table for President Trump and the queen to look at is this letter. So this has got to be an important letter. So um, here is the answer. So in the letter that Washington writes to John Jay, and they had worked closely together during the war, Washington describes that, quote, our affairs are drawing rapidly to a crisis because they realized, and it wasn't just Jay and Washington, it was also Madison and Hamilton recognized, and that was the book that we've talked about in prior evenings called The Quartet by one of my favorite historians, Mrs. Joseph Ellis, and he attributes those four founding fathers of getting together and helping, you know, create the new federal government and getting the Constitution adopted. So long story short, this is a letter between Jay and Washington, and Washington is describing, quote, our affairs are drawing rapidly to a crisis. What's the crisis? That one state is, is putting a tariff on another and restricting commerce between the states. The states were devolving instead of one unified country. They're treating each other as separate countries. That They're, they're not treating themselves as all Americans. They're, they're taking shots at, at each other. Uh, also, he's describing, of course, that they had this rebellion, Shays Rebellion, where uh in western Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken, you had farmers who were protesting and uh, they were going into bankruptcy because they couldn't pay their taxes. So there were all kinds of economic problems at the time. And these founding fathers realized that we'd spent uh, lives and treasure to fight the British, and now our experiment in democracy is falling apart. So they wanted to do something about it. So this letter dated August 15th, 1786, which they have the original copy in London, and we put the copy of it so people can read it online. You can read the digitized version. And Washington goes on to say, I do not conceive we can exist long as a nation without having lodged somewhere a power which will pervade the whole union, with the union in capital U, the whole whole union, in an energetic manner. So what does Washington mean when he says we need a power which will pervade the whole union in an energetic manner? He means we need a stronger federal government because the states are going after each other. They're not working together as a unified country. I'm going to continue reading from the yep. letter. And now we don't. Now our states don't even do battle with each other because of Amendment 17. They've been emasculated. Yes, it's completely neutered. This country's neutered ever since we voted directly for senators. Unreal. Continue, Adam. 
again, I'm repeating from the letter, Washington's describing, we need a power which will pervade the whole Union in an energetic manner as the authority of the different state governments extend over the several states. So he wants a federal government that can be as strong as the state governments. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. Isn't that amazing that our founding was has been completely skewed? It's unbelievable that <laughs> the federal government, um, in other words, Washington gets his way because today he has what he's always wanted. No, this may be excessive today. It's excessive, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, go ahead. So Washington writes, to be fearful of vesting Congress, constituted as that body is, and this was the Congress under the Articles, which was extremely weak, with ample authorities for national purposes. So he wanted the Congress to have power for national purposes, that's his language, mm-hmm. appears to me the very climax of popular absurdity and madness. So Washington is saying it's absurd, it's mad that the Congress can't do the national business that needs to be done. And this is an important letter where, again, Jay, Hamilton, Washington, they're all realizing we need to do something uh, because we won the war, but we're going to lose the peace if we can't get our act together nationally. And remember that you needed to have, you didn't even have members of, of the different states showing up in Congress. They couldn't have quorums, they couldn't raise money, there were all kinds of problems. So also the letter talks about how, and remember Washington had retired after the war. He, he was out of, he was a private citizen, and John Jay is trying to find out, might he be willing to help with this project of, of leading the Constitutional Convention, and, and they haven't yet proposed it, but they're, they're sort of trying to tease from Washington, will he support this project of trying to create a stronger federal government? So that's part of this correspondence. And let me read to you what Washington says. Washington says, retired as I am from the world, I frankly acknowledge I cannot feel myself an unconcerned spectator. Yet, having happily assisted in bringing the ship into port and having been fairly discharged, it's not my business to embark again on a sea of troubles. So I won't read all the letter, but Washington is saying, you know, I retired, so it's going to take some convincing for me to leave Mount Vernon if you guys want to bring me into this national project of rebuilding the federal government. And eventually Washington is persuaded, and he does come to become the founder of the the presiding officer at the Constitutional Convention. Now, Adam, there was a convention uh, before the one in Philadelphia in uh, Annapolis. Do you know what, what year that was? Was that in 86? I think that was 86, and we 1786, so that same year, and the Annapolis Convention didn't have enough states show up. Okay. Hamilton went, and Madison went, and we talked about this on another evening, that at the Annapolis Convention in Maryland, Hamilton had the idea, rather than, and this gets to perception, and this gets to seizing the initiative, and this gets to how you how you label something. So rather than treating the Annapolis Convention where they couldn't do anything because they didn't have enough state show up, they didn't have a quorum, Hamilton had the idea, and they agreed, and they let him draft it, to uh, to treat the Annapolis Convention as a success, as a as a staging point, if you will, as, as, the, as the basis to call for the Philadelphia Convention. So rather than treating it as a failure, they treated it as the opportunity to call for another convention in Philadelphia. So Hamilton wrote that, and that might have been something that the, the, the Queen could have put in the collection, but they don't have that letter, I don't think. But uh, so what's the point? The point is that, uh, you know, this letter from John Jay, sorry, from Washington to John Jay is the effort to sort of tease out of Washington. Would he be willing to come out of retirement? and what were his thoughts on a stronger federal government. And, you know, that made history. That's a very important letter, and it's in England. And it was on display when the king, I'm sorry, when the queen and President Trump went through uh, Buckingham Palace on June 3rd, I believe it was, earlier this month. Wow. Unbelievable. So where where would this go if, uh, are are you saying, I mean, if it wasn't for Trump's visit, 
Are you saying that this would never would never come to the forefront? These stories you're telling. So that's, that's another good question. So these letters, and that's one of the things I looked when I emailed, and they emailed me back amazingly when I when I spoke to by email the the, the archives in, in in London, and uh, it's a wonderful website, and I put links on statutes and stories. I wanted to verify that all of that correspondence in that ten year worth of of letters to and from John Jay that American historians had access to it, that you wouldn't have to travel to London to get access and, you know, good luck if it's in the Queen's collection. But the quick answer is, as far as I can tell, all, all the letters were digitized, including this August 15, 1786 letter. And I've seen it written about by, you know, Chernow and other historians, so there's no secret what's in that letter. But, uh, you know, the original copy of all places is in London, uh, so that was one of the items on this table, and the table was called A Tale of Two Georges. So let me tell you the second item on this table that, again, tells the story of Washington and, and George III. So the second item is another rare book, so not this is the only other book. The other items are not books. Now, did they ever actually uh, come face to face and ever ever oh, have George and George? Yeah, no, never. They never saw each other in person in any way. Only Skype conference. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, they never met face to face, but uh, they were on each other's minds because uh, you know the Revolutionary War was was a world war, and it was uh, you know important consequences that that's uh, a good thing that, that we had that Revolutionary War. So. Um, and we can talk about George III and uh, what happened. He, he was the king of England for many years. So let me give a little bit more background about George III. So he became king at a relatively young age. And uh, here's a question for you. The, the, the dynasty, the George II and George I, that family, uh, give me the name of that royal family, if either of you know. Saxe-Coburg is where they came from. It's, I think it's the Hanoverians, Hanover, in Germany. Oh, they were German. Yeah. Uh, the British royal family came out of Germany, believe it or not. Well, since and George III was the first of that Hanoverian family, so his father and his father's father, George I, George II, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. their native language was not English, it was right. German. They could barely so speak George German. George III was the first... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but that's why they got him. If you look back at 1066, the uh, since 1066... Uh, Edward the Confessor was the last Anglo-Saxon king. Every other king of England has been a foreigner. In 1066, the Normans and the French. In 1453, the Tudors were from uh, Wales. Then uh, the Stuarts from uh, Scotland. And then these Germans. So every time the, the, the British have brought in foreign kings, which is actually helpful in preserving their liberty, because the king never connected with the common people. And so he was always an outsider. And in the case of the Germans, they were brought in by a very strong parliament that had already deposed two kings during the 1600s. So the the Germans came in around 1714 after the, the Stuart dynasties had died out. And remember, the, the British beheaded Charles I and kicked out James II. So the, the parliament had a lot of power and they were the ones that brought in, and I think it makes great sense to bring in a foreign king that will not have local connections and, and be able to act like a tyrant. Oh, uh, are you implying that Barack Obama No, I'm not implying anything about America. The different, oh, okay. but I'm just saying it's a good, it's not a bad thing to have these foreign kings. In fact, England has had foreign families as kings since 1066. First the Normans with William the Conqueror, then the French, uh, in fact, until 1453, England had a big empire in France 
because of the Norman conquest. The Normans were French nobility, so they had all these cousins and so on. So, And then in 1453, the Tudors became kings of England. They're from Wales. In 1603 or 07, the Stuarts, because Queen Elizabeth didn't have any children, so the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, became king of England. There was a union of England and Scotland. And so the Stuarts, and they had a stormy time, and then when the Stuarts died out, 1714, the parliament picked uh, a, a closest relative who happened to be in, in Germany, George I, and he couldn't speak English. That's the kind of king you want. <laughs> wow. So Think let let me that. respond to some of those observations. So first, you clearly know your, your royal and English history. Second <laughs> observation is that the, even though these royal family members are coming in from the continent, they're still related. And yeah, use yeah. the Habsburgs as an example. So this is in Austria-Hungary, that uh, they were very happy to marry out the extended families to maintain the family relationships all across Europe. But you're right. So George I, George II, their native language was German. So George III was the first king in that dynasty. This is the Hanover, help me with the pronunciation. Hanoverian. Hanoverian. Yeah dynasty that his native language was English. So yeah. George III was the first native English speaker from that line of kings. And uh, that later on, led to, he became very interested in books. That's one of those, who would have thunk it? Yeah. Unbelievable. But it's smart for the English to do that. Get a king that's not going to have a connection. He can't become a tyrant, or it's very hard. So, and, of course, they're all related, so yeah, we can yeah. debate about what is English mean. So yeah. it's clear that they're all English in the broad sense. Yeah. Um, and But you're right, that it was a multicultural dynasty of the of the leaders and rulers of England. And it was, well, that, England. that could be debated, though, that they were all British in the broad sense. It's pretty—I think Ed made it very clear that they weren't British at all. <laughs> they were every, everything well, but British. yeah, they were. I mean— Adam is right that there was kind of a pan-European mafia of royal families, and they married each other. And that still goes on. To yeah, but you're, aren't you uh, assuming that they, it was, the origins were British when they perhaps no. weren't? No, they weren't. No. Wow. Yeah. Let me get back to the second book in this collection, if I could, and, and then we'll move away from the two books, and we'll talk about these other artifacts. And remember, I keep trying to emphasize, this is over 500 years of uh, you know, royal treasure. So what do they put on display for Queen Elizabeth II and for President Trump? So the second book, and these have to be important historically, uh, is a rare first edition. There are 200 of them printed. One of them is in England, and it's a book of the, the first printing of the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the 13 original state constitutions. So this was printed in 1781 by a publisher, Francis Bailey. This is during the war. They printed these constitutions, and it's referred to as the, the American Magna Carta. So quick question for everybody. What is the Magna Carta? Well... No, go ahead. No, no, go. I don't want to be stumped. In 1215, the barons of England imposed on King John Lackland, I think they call him, uh, certain limitations on his power and rights for the people, like the right to habeas corpus, the right generally to due process, uh, the right to a fair trial. That, that, so that was the start of imposing the rule of law in England on the king's power. Which also uh, was the basis for our eventual Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights. Yep. Okay. This is Anglo.
Anglo-American law. That's one of the cornerstones in Anglo-American law. And the, those who have commented on the book that I'm about to describe to you, they refer to it as the American Magna Carta. So what is in this book? And the quick answer is it's a small, thin little book. It is a true treasure of American legal history. And this book that was put on display for Queen Elizabeth and President Trump contained the Declaration of Independence, the Articles, the Articles of Confederation was our first constitution for the federal government. And then, I think it's very interesting, they included in that collection all of the 13 state constitutions, almost as if they're on par with the federal constitution. And it's interesting, if you were to go through that book, and historians will do this, they'll, they'll look at and compare the different state constitutions. And here's a question for you, and some of these are going to be difficult, but what was the first state, and take a guess when, to create its own constitution during the Revolutionary War? What was the first state constitution? And ultimately, you had 13 state constitutions. And I'll tell you what it's not, because if you remember the exhibit we did at ANOVA, we had the Massachusetts Constitution, which was written by, maybe I'll ask that question, who wrote the Massachusetts Constitution? Uh, um, Think of my name. John Adams. John Adams. So John Adams, we had a copy of it, um, published in 1780. I'm sorry, in 1800, we had an 1801 copy um, of the Massachusetts Constitution at NOVA during the exhibit, but it was written in 1780 by John Adams, uh, but that was not the first state constitution. Virginia's? Uh, yeah, I think Virginia. I, so I, Virginia was one of the early ones, and let me ask you that question. That, who that wrote wasn't the first, The though. Virginia Constitution. Patrick Henry? And it's Henry? not who you think. Patrick Henry? That's a good guess. So Jefferson was in Philadelphia because he was a member of the Continental Continental Congress. Yep. So Jefferson had given suggestions, but he was not the the pensman of the of the Virginia Constitution. It was Mason uh, and Madison were the two principal. Oh, okay. Authors so Madison was back in Virginia. So Madison and Mason were in Virginia, and okay. they wrote the Virginia Constitution. But the Virginia Constitution was not the first state constitution. And you would not, I wouldn't have guessed this in a million years, but I will give you a hint, and it may not be too helpful. But it was the ninth state to ratify the Constitution was the first state to write a constitution. I want to take a guess at one. Delaware. So Delaware was the first to ratify, but what was the ninth state to ratify? And it's uh, it's got new in the name. So which of the 13 colonies, original states, has, has a new in the name, and it's in the north? <laughs> new Hampshire. New Hampshire. So New Hampshire in 1776, in January of 1776. This is before the Declaration of Independence. Many, many. When's the uh, Declaration of Independence? 1776, Declaration. Yeah, but what day? Well, it's supposed to be July the 4th. Right. We can debate about it because you guys Adam, trying to you guys are trying to set me up or what? Right. So think about that. New Hampshire wrote its state constitution in January, six months before the Declaration of Independence in July of 1776. So this book that I'm describing included starting with the New Hampshire Constitution, the Virginia Constitution, the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania Constitution, which was an interesting constitution. It had a unicameral legislature. What's a unicameral legislature? Well, there's uh, one body only. One chamber, right? One, one chamber time. of directly you know, directly elected representatives without any property restrictions. So the Pennsylvania Constitution was was an interesting mixed bag, and we could debate about what was good and bad about it. Uh, but that authorized a lot of freedom for people who, if they were paying taxes and working, they could vote as long as they were white and they were males. Uh, they did not have to be landowners in that Massachusetts, I'm sorry, in that Pennsylvania Constitution. So long story short, this book that was on the table, it's a very thin, small book, had the first official 
bound volume of the Declaration, the Articles of the Articles of Confederation, the 13 state constitutions, and uh, the other point is that uh, there are only a handful of those 200 copies. If you go to the most famous libraries in the world, is where they might be lucky to have one, and uh, it was printed by an act of the Continental Congress. So Continental Congress took a vote and they said we need to assemble together these important documents, the Constitution, the state constitutions, the Declaration, so that uh, when we eventually win the war, we'll have everything together and we'll have our act together. So that's a very important, that rare first edition, they have it in England. And it was shown uh, to the delegation that traveled this month to Buckingham Palace. Wow. That was, a, that was an, <laughs> an incredible go-around. I mean, we went, we covered uh, decades of, upon decades, and if you add Ed's uh, dissertation of the royal lineages, we, <laughs> we're talking centuries. So I wonder, do we have any names of the uh, uh, framers of the Constitution of New Hampshire? And the reason I ask is that one of our friends, uh, Carolina, is from the Langdon family in New Hampshire. They were a shipbuilding family. They built some of the early American uh, fighting ships, the Ranger, and some of the other, uh, John Paul Jones. Uh, and then they wound up, uh, one of their members of their family wound up in Argentina, also in the shipping and uh, uh, logging business. That is an excellent question, and I looked to see did John Langdon draft the New Hampshire Constitution, which we just established was the first state to adopt its own constitution. Right. And the answer is that he was busy in Philadelphia oh, okay. with Jefferson, and he was also busy during the war, and, and he was involved, as you said, as a shipbuilder and a merchant in getting that Navy together. And let me do an aside real quick. So um, one of the other evenings we talked about the Continental Navy, and I may have pointed out to you that it was disbanded in 1785, and it was it wasn't until Hamilton came around as the Secretary of Treasury. And uh, why did why did Hamilton need Treasury cutters? Manny, why, why did Hamilton have to reconstitute our, our, uh, our naval force as the Treasury Secretary? To collect tariffs, because that was oh, the only right, source. Oh, that's right, that's right, yes. Only collect... source of revenue for the Fed. Absolutely, to raid uh, ships, yes. To enforce the tariff laws. That was how the federal government got money. So my, my point is, I looked to see, because we talked about it one of the other evenings, what happened to the Continental, Continental Navy? And Ed had made the point that the majority of the naval warfare, to the extent there was naval warfare, was privateers with letters of mark who were you know, trying to seize British goods and British shipments. But we did have a navy. We, we, the Continental Congress got its act together and was able to build a handful of boats, and they also purchased boats. And then after the war, by 1785, we deconstituted and sold off all of those naval ships, but we did have a continental navy, which did own boats, so we did have actual boats that, that, that we used. But the point is that um, so John Langdon from New Hampshire was involved with that continental navy and with uh, also in Philadelphia at various times. Um, but that's an excellent question because I was curious myself. So this was, and I'll, we'll stop talking about the books. I want to now get into some of these other really interesting artifacts. And uh, remember, this is a, a display for a president and for a queen, so it's got to be good. So the third item in this on the table called The Tale of Two Georges was a map of New York City from 1775. And uh, why do you think the, the folks who work with the queen and the royal assistants and uh, those the archivists who work with this collection of, of the royal treasures, why would they choose it sort of a... a yeah, because Trump develops in New York. He's a New Yorker, so he'd want to look and see what New York and, looked like. And, and on top of that, the streets were very much the same, and the urban planning no, was very... No, there was a lot. No, like, Downtown, central... maybe, but yeah. What's the big park in London that's... Uh, Hyde Park. Hyde Park? 
is uh, not similar, but it's the same concept as uh, Central Park. Yeah, but Central Park was not laid out in 1775. Of course not. They did, the map wouldn't have shown that. But there was an intention to have a park in the middle of New York. No. Please. Say yes. Go ahead, Adam, because he's just nodding his head, being his old curmudgeon self. Go ahead. Well, I'm going to invite everybody. And here's a way to have you describe it. Two websites people have to go to. You have to go to statutesandstories.com, and you can see this map yourself because we put pictures on, not just diaries, not just books, but also all kinds of visual, uh, you know, nice, nice history. So you can see this map. And, and why would the British have wanted a map of New York City in 1775 if we're fighting a war? Up to attack? Military planning? Yeah, New York is pretty indefensible. If you sail into the bay... Pretty much take the whole thing. Yeah, it, yeah, and they had the infantry to do it. So this was a map made by the, the British map makers and engineers. So when they decided they want to conquer, and they did, when they wanted to take New York City, this was the map that they were going to use to get the layout of the land. And it's very strategic, not just because you have the Hudson Valley and not just because uh, you know, su- supplying troops and cutting the colonies in half, right, because New York is a middle colony or middle state. So uh, this is an important war map, which is why they have it in Britain. So uh, if you go to the website and you look at it, and what, what's the other website that people have to be familiar with, Manny? So you can read about it on statutesofstories.com, and where do you go if you want to listen to the broadcast? WSQFradio.com. So here is a question, a trivia question. So this map was used during what was the name of the battle? So the battle that Trenton. British. No, I just threw that out. Uh, Brooklyn. The Battle of Manhattan. Man- oh, another borough. Uh, Brooklyn. The Battle of Brooklyn. So on April twenty seventh. 1776. It's also called the Battle of Long Island because they invaded first through Staten Island. They came across Long Island, mm-hmm. uh, and then they they took Manhattan and, and through Brooklyn. And that was the first major battle of the Revolutionary War: is the British taking New York, and they would hold New York from 1776 all the way till 1783 when they finally evacuated. So if you go to StatutesAndStories.com, you can read more about. It. And I, I give a a diary entry. So we've got George Washington's diary. People can read it in 1781 when he's thinking about attacking New York and he's considering taking back New York City. He doesn't. Where does he finally fight the big battle? Not in, in, not in New York. Where's the big battle, which is probably the, the most important battle of the war? Yorktown. We, Yorktown. So we don't fight the British in New York. We fight them in 1781 in Yorktown. But nevertheless, he was taking reconnaissance of New York City because uh, he wasn't sure where they wanted to have their big battle. And... Um, it's interesting. He describes what happened between 1776 and 1783 in New York City, because the city is going to look very different between 1776, when the British take it, and 1783, when they leave. So what happened in 1776, shortly after the British take New York City? There's an important event that changes the city. The, the burning down of New York City? No. The, right. Br- the British uh, had all these prison ships along the East River where patriots were... Uh, wasting away, and many of them died in terrible conditions. That's what happened. That, that is one of the things that happens in New York, and yep. we talked about that in another evening. There's a book, The Ghost Ship of New York, Ghost right. Ships of New York, which talks about these prison ships, and more American soldiers died in British prison ships in New York Harbor than died in battlefield losses. Yep. So let me give you some of the statistics. So in the Battle of Long Island, also known as the Battle of Brooklyn, the British 
as I said, the first British victory, or major victory during the Revolutionary War. Over a thousand American casualties, and the British only lost about 400. And how does Washington and Hamilton get out of New York? The fog, the deep, general the, the famous fog of Long Island, where they sneak out under a fog. No? That's right. Yeah. Sneak out by boat, and uh, had Howe come, you know, been more aggressive and and pushed it, and not let them escape through Brooklyn Heights, uh, they may have crushed the rebels, and the war would have lasted very long. Yeah, that's where they they claim that there was God, good providence that mm-hmm. day that the fog just set in, and and he shows up again in uh, at, at Yorktown, correct? I don't know if there was fog at Yorktown. Then. No, 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 not the fog, but providence. The, the very fact that he was able to escape New York, he was able to eventually go south for the Great Battle of Yorktown, where everybody assembles. And I think that's where Alexander Hamilton did his famous uh, uh, sword fighting at the redoubts there, correct? Or no? That's right. So Hamilton leads the assault with his bayonet. Uh, I think it was Redoubt 10. And the Americans took one of the. Remember, these, this was siege warfare, so the British had set up. Um, you know, Fort. high elevations and walls. And yeah, forts. Forts. So, uh, and the French took one, Lafayette, and Hamilton led another assault. So, we're going back to the Great Fire of 1776. Now, take a wild guess about what percent of New York City was burnt during that fire. This is after the British took New York. What percent of the city was, uh, they wouldn't have an exact number, but give me a rough percentage. How much of the city? 100%. Then there would be no New York City left. So uh, the answer, I mean, there are different perspectives on it, but approximately one-third of New York City was destroyed by that fire. So here the question is, who do we think set that fire? The British, were, it was their main base of operations. So who do we think set that fire? And, and the quick answer is that it was probably the Americans trying to, you know, send a message to the British and, and burn them out, and uh, who can play that game? So let me read you from George Washington's diary in 1781 when he's scoping out New York City. He's not in New York City, but he's looking at it probably through the equivalent of, what would they call binoculars back then? Spyglass. Spying glass, right? So he's got his spies giving him the ideas and trying to figure out what's, what's in New York if they want to attack it. And this is what Washington writes in his diary. He says, New York City's trees... Let me read it to you. So here it is. The island is totally stripped of trees and wood of every kind. And he talks about how the old orchids in New York City and the woods uh, were destroyed because, A, the fire, but also there were a series of really bad, bitter winters. And what would people do if they need to warn themselves if you're in Manhattan? You cut down the trees. So New York was totally denuded, or at least the part of New York where people were living. All the trees were cut down. And Washington, in his diary, points out that, hey, we won't have trees to hide behind, but the city looks very different than what it was only a couple years ago prior to the fire and prior to the British controlling it. So here's some other quick observations about New York City. Uh, so one observation is that loyalists, their houses, especially if they'd left, were confiscated. So who would the British put in the house of a loyalist? And the answer is British officers would get the houses of loyalists to live in. Oh, kind of like how the Castro Cubans did it. Okay. What no, about no, churches? No, those are like the houses of patriots, say, right? Yeah. The houses of patriots were confiscated by the British. 
That's right. And the British officers would get to live in a house. And where would the British troops, who were just the regular infantry and the regular, uh, what shall we call them, the, you know, the grunts, where would they live? Because New York was the base of operations for the British. And the quick answer is churches were converted into prisons, barracks, and infirmaries, except if it was a Church of England. If it was an official English church, then it got to stay intact. But all the other churches that were, were used by the British for these purposes, as we said, as the barracks for soldiers, as, uh, as what do we say, uh, barracks, we said, converted into prisons. And uh, we know a lot of the soldiers, if not the majority of them, were in their ships. And the other use of the churches were for supplies and for infirmaries. So that raises the question um, about that fire. Who do we think started the fire? And it's interesting because General Howe, in, in a report that he writes back to London, because the British generals would report back to Parliament and to those who are commanding them from, from London, uh, his opinion that it was the Americans, and I've got a quote here. Uh, so according to General Howe, this, the fire of New York in 1776 was a, quote, most horrid attempt was made by a number of wretches to burn the town. And it's interesting what Washington thought about it. And Washington basically said it was Providence or a, I'm not sure remember exactly what he said, but basically Washington was saying that a, a loyal, good fellow, you know, had set the fire to give the British a dose of their own medicine. So the British uh, didn't like the fire, and Washington was pleased, and we give a quote, and we give a, a citation. People can read Washington's letter that he writes to uh, one of his relatives talking about, um, you know, that fire in New York City and how it was, it was a good thing uh, that, uh, you know, this is it's a way of fighting the British, because we were the, the rebels, we were the, you know, the guerrillas that were fighting the British. So that is the, the map of New York City, which can see from 1775, which was on display in Buckingham Palace. So what else can I tell you? Um, you know, and these will do quickly. So there were portraits. The Queen also showed President Trump a portrait of George Washington and an engraved portrait of George III. And uh, you can go see those pictures yourself. It's, it's interesting to see. Um, so what else can I tell you? And um, Let's see. Let me talk a little bit about the royal collection. So the royal collection, I said, and, and Ed, you mentioned earlier how Oliver Cromwell, and this is uh, in 1649, he, he executes Charles I. So that's one way of getting rid of a monarch is you yeah. execute him. But Charles I was executed, and and uh, Oliver Cromwell, who was the, the, the rebel, if you will, of, of Britain, who, uh, who dethrones a king, um, and this is, we can talk about that period of English history, but at the time they sold off a lot of the, the royal treasures. So a lot of the unique and valuable records uh, you know, were sold off. Uh, so the, the collection today really starts most of it 500 years ago in 1649 after Cromwell um, was, uh, was forced out and when the, the monarchy was restored in the, in the 1650 time frame. But it's a 500-year collection of valuable records and, and all kinds. A lot of it's available online. You can go through that's how I was going to, to find it and researching it. Um, so they also have, and this is not to talk about George III. So George III, who was, as we said earlier, one of the first English kings on the Hanoverian dynasty who speaks mm -hmm. English as his native tongue, established the British Royal Academy of Arts. And Ed, this is interesting because he's bringing in not just English scholars and artists, he's bringing in experts from all over Europe, you know, from Italy and from Germany and from France. Well, he brought in Handel, who... Uh who uh, composed the Messiah and the water music and all that stuff. He was German. Handel. So he wants the best. He yep. was a collector of books. He was a patron of the arts. 
he reestablished the Royal Library, made it available to scholars, and uh, interestingly, King George III, and a lot of people think of him as uh, as becoming mad and crazy in his old age, which is true, but uh, he was interested in the study of science, he also studied agriculture, and in the British Museum, they've got his astronaut, he created an astronomical observatory so he could study astronomy, and there are examples of his scientific instruments in that British Science Museum where you can see that were used by George III. So all kinds of good history for people who want to learn about it. Wow. Yeah, if you ever go to London, that's a good, uh, the Greenwich Too late, uh, I already went to London. Greenwich Observatory has a lot of that. I already went to London and I observed that many of the streets and cross streets were very similar to to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. London and Manhattan have a lot of similarities. So that's all I got to say about London. I don't think I'll, I'll go back only because I don't think life will afford me the opportunity to go back. But uh, if I do travel again to Europe, it won't be to London. There's so, there's so many other parts of Europe that I'm still ready to see. And maybe, you know. Maybe Krakow. We have a friend there for you to visit. Poland. Well, Adam, thank you very much for this edition of Statues and Stories. And I hope the that we basically have a, a, a another outing in um, next Monday. What are we going to talk about? So we did not have time today to talk much about John Jay, but we basically just scratched the surface. So we'll talk about John Jay. Yep. And I'd like to continue. Let me do a minute about Juneteenth. So people can go to statutesandstories.com, and we have a post on Juneteenth where we post it. And uh, over the years, we've put on statutesandstories.com all kinds of, of statutes and laws dealing with, uh, you know, America's got a positive side, and we also have a negative legacy, which obviously is slavery. But Juneteenth is referred to as Juneteenth Independence Day. It's referred to as Freedom Day. It's called America's Second Independence Day. We've got links to, I'll just read some of these acts that people can go for, you know, look at in more detail, but the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, we've posted about that. We've posted about personal liberty laws, which is the northern states trying to stand up and the abolitionists trying to do the right thing. We've posted about the Civil Rights Act of 18, we've talked about it, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. You can read about the Peonage Act of 1867, and that's spelled P-E-O-N-A-G-E, the Peonage Act of 1867. So even after the Civil Civil War, we're still fighting involuntary debt servitude, uh, and there are all kinds of good things. The House gag rule and John at John Quincy Adams, that's an interesting story. So all this is written about on statutes and stories, and it fits nicely with Juneteenth if you want to learn that part of American history. And we'll continue that discussion next week on Monday at 7 o'clock. Well, thank you very much. Another, another wonderful edition of Statutes and Stories with Adam Levinson. And uh, stay free, my friends. We'll thank be you, Adam. Thank you, and uh, it's time for us. We didn't start the fire. How about that, Billy Joel? Thanks, everyone. Good night. WSQF, Blink Radio 94.5. Stay free, my friend.